we've kind of been exploring a series here of a, a church nation, the people of God. It's the end of the, of the Old Testament where we're entering some 400 years of radio silence shortly. And this is God's final words before Christ and his ministry is going to happen. And he's not finding this group of people exactly where they really need to be at this point. We know this based on the strength of the comments, the explicit statements that God has been making to Israel in this book, in this uh, book by Malachi. These statements are in response to their worship practices, their attitude towards him and their treatment of each other. And this has been coming out in this series over the last six weeks uh, in the form of blemishes which are found in God's people around 450 BC. And we use this word blemish not as a bit of an oopsie or a mistake. Word blemish, something blemished in Old Testament uh, you know, law, Levitical law, was actually something pretty serious. So we understand the word blemish is actually kind of a really strong word to be grappling with there, to understand. Um, and when it's something set apart for God's purposes, a blemish is a really big deal. So the first blemish was this one here, the inability to see the fullness of God's love for them. How's that for a blemish? Questioning the love that God has for us. That's actually not good territory to be in. To come to a point where we can look at God, look at all that's going on around us, consider all that God has done for us, despite all the constant redemption that we have received and the many times Israel was being redeemed from slavery and, and they've had their falls from grace and God has been there to pick them up. These guys aren't seeing it. Sometimes we don't either. And when we don't see it, it leads to a very apathetic Christian expression. These guys are not necessarily seeking to live in rebellion, but in terms of their devotion, they're not exactly knocking it out of the park either. It's a case of meh. Indifference towards the God that they know. And to live in that indifferent place in our Christian faith actually does more harm than we know. It's not a healthy place to be. Related to that is this idea that they have no revelation of the sovereignty of God. Israel is giving second best offerings and second rate worship whenever they gather to celebrate who they are in God. To the point that worldly authorities and even oppressive governors are getting more honor than God gets in worship. Out of this, we're left with a question about the priority the Lord gets in our lives given the avenues of Western-styled honor and, and even worship that pulls us aside as well. We have this idea in Malachi that God is Father, Master, Captain, and King. And an attitude that accepts any less than this out of God creates an avenue for cheapened worship and even Western-flavored idolatry. The third blemish is a completely unengaged and powerless priesthood that has sadly lost its way and forgotten its call. 
This has an application in church leadership, the elected, the employed, the appointed type. And it has an application among the whole body of Christ, who is described by, by Peter as a collective royal priesthood. Together, we do this role together. As a priesthood together, we have collective responsibilities to be teachers and interpreters of the world to the world around us about God's ways. To preserve knowledge instead of letting the Western church language and scriptural illiteracy. To be guardians of impartial justice and mercy. To be messengers of the covenant. To be intercessors for the people outside the figurative temple. And to walk in such a way and set such an example that those who follow flourish rather than stumble. As a priesthood together, this is our responsibility. I just read out the job description of a Christian right there. And anything less than that is a blemished expression. It's something that we must constantly look at and go, you know what, that, that doesn't belong. These other things don't belong. We've got to preserve what, who we are in God. In week four, Marguerite showed us the next blemish, broken covenants. If they doubted God as a covenant-keeping God, then that's going to come out in how we treat each other. And in particular, the covenant of marriage was brought out and fleshed out in a really big way in that one. In week five, Chris fleshed out some of the restorative work that God in his grace is going to be doing. And, uh, and I say this with all affirmation and admiration. Chris is now known as Where's the Grace? Chris Spencer, is, is, that's, that's, his, that's going to be his, that's what we know him as now, you know, that, that he, he was actually drawing us to the grace of God that is in action there. And I deeply appreciate the input that was brought there because that brings, all, we need to be reminded that all that God is doing here, all the correction, all the different things that are going on in, in, around us are driven from God's position of grace. We've got to understand that at all times. Last week, Peter brought out the blemished heart, which was connected to a blemished wallet. This is all intertwined again. If they're guardians of justice and mercy, then their wallet actually played a role in that. That's what the tithe actually did. Instead of robbing from God by withholding the things that the Lord ordained to be his, and instead of living out the attitude that they owned everything, Israel is now being called to repent and return to the mindset not of ownership, but stewardship. And to give to God the things that belong to him. Now we know in ancient Israel this was a tithe, but to us it's more than something prescribed. The law prescribes, but grace goes beyond that. We're not taught or instructed in the New Testament to give a prescribed 10%, but Christians are clearly taught to be radically generous. If our rhythms of Christian generosity arrive at a strict 10% and not a, not a cent more, or even a resentful 10%, then we enter the mindset of legalism rather than responding to the grace of God. For me, legalism is actually the sinful attitude of doing just enough. That's just one of my working definitions. Legalism, the sinful act of doing just enough. It's responding in obligation rather than freedom to the great things that the Lord does in our lives. Legalism is a blemish to be avoided because grace is not operating in the space of legalism. 
And now we come to the final readings in this series. A statement from the Lord, a questioning Israel, and an answer with both judgment and incredible hope. So let's go Malachi 3. We'll just look at the first few bits right now. So starting at verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going, like, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. There is a line of questioning from Israel in this passage that has actually been asked many times before in the Old Testament. It's a question that continues to be asked amongst God's people. Why? Why does the world around us get away with what it does? Why is there so much injustice and strife and persecution? And why does it appear that God's hand is not actually acting on those things? Where's God when all this goes down? When do victims get justice? There are good men in the Bible who have taken the time to ask the Lord about this and grapple with the concept. Prophets, kings, apostles. Job is an obvious place to start with this. We all know his hardship, you know, what he came down with and, and where his life was at. It's gone down to the gutter, from prosperity to the gutter. And in chapter 21, he actually asks this, why does everyone else who hates you, God... Do well. David asked the question in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against the anointed one? The apostles used that very verse in Acts 4 as a prayer when their persecution was starting. If you've ever had questions along those lines, you are in very good company, friends. There are loads of times in Scripture where people would ask the Lord, what's going on here? And they'd be justified in doing so. Lament like this was used regularly in ancient liturgy. It's important to note that that questioning appears in the Psalms. Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage against the anointed one? There, there is Psalms of lament, questions of God's intent for his people. What are you at work doing here? It's important to see it in the Psalms because it shows us that Israel used this sentiment legitimately in rhythms of gathered worship. There are times where the big picture of God's hand is that, is that his hand at work is not overly clear and the scriptures show us that God is not going to squash us down for daring to ask God about that in those times. We often see that he patiently journeys with the inquirer as they navigate through that thinking. God's quite okay with us asking our way through our doubts when the big picture isn't quite so clear. Some of us are in that place now. We're navigating doubt. It's okay to talk to God through that. Hey, I'm dealing with doubt. Where are you? What's going on? Some of us are dealing with real life issues right now and, and it's legitimate as part of your worship, part of your devotion to go, God, what are you doing here? It is completely and utterly appropriate to do those things. 
But this instance in Malachi is not one of those justifiable types. It's one thing to have a serious conversation with God when things seem unjust. When we're victims of circumstance, when there's circumstances outside of our control, when, when there's things conspiring against us that are making our faith expression somewhat, somewhat difficult. But it's a whole other thing when God has clearly been working and we're doing nothing with the opportunities given to us in that time. This is where Israel is sitting as Malachi addresses them. They've been freed from their captivity. They're free people. They're back in their own land. The women were now free from being forced to marry Babylonian royalty. The men were free from becoming eunuchs. That was commonplace. They were freely permitted to observe and express their religion without being suppressed without being persecuted, without being laughed at while they were in Babylon. God was drawing them back together once again after they've pushed their own self-destruct button. He's giving them a fresh chance of being who they were called to be. Everything God was doing in their midst up to this point was setting them up to succeed, not fail. And yet something wasn't working. The crops aren't growing, the livestock aren't breeding. The life they're positioned to have wasn't being fruitful. And their conclusion with this is that it's God's fault. And they're questioning now their resolve to, to serve God. They're looking at the world around them going, they're getting on with life and they're not getting any judgment, they're not getting any, they're not, they're not doing any worse than we are, not doing any better than we are. They're, they're getting by. What's the point of serving God if you know, we've got this thing, we've got these rules, we've got this law, we've got this idea of God, and, and we've got this long face, we're downcast in how we do this. The world around us is laughing their head off, and they're not, getting, they're not doing any worse than we are. What's the point? God, what's going on here? But God says it's actually not his fault. He's not the problem. Israel is. Their lack of prosperity in this is going hand in hand with their own disobedience. There's no honor or generosity towards God. There's no justice towards each other. There's cheapened worship in response to a generous covenant-keeping God. And no sense of commitment in their faith expression. It's nominal. It's sitting on the fence, it's indifferent, it's powerless. And there is a self-centered arrogance coming out of them at this time. Hence the question, what do we get out of this whole God-fearing thing? And therein is the big problem. You see, when our perspective on being the people of God shifts from His sovereign plan to our personal gain, we then enter the mindset of arrogance towards God in doing so. Yes, God blesses us, but life is not about what do I get out of this God? It's all about how does God be glorified and how does His agenda and how does His kingdom come and His will be done. 
it's dangerous territory to be in an arrogant place. Part of our culture here, you know, I'm actually saying this because of the different people groups in our midst today, we have this culture, cultural thing called first world problems. Here's some examples of what I mean by that. If you go to a restaurant and you want Coke, but the restaurant only serves Pepsi, and you get angry at that, that's a first world problem. Something, you know, me this morning, well, 18 months ago, 6.50 a.m. on a Sunday, I'm grumbling because I've got to go through McDonald's drive-thru to get a bucket of tar called coffee. And then I come here at 9.30 and all you guys have got your designer coffee cups happening. <laughs> Thank God for Bay Blue. <laughs> this morning, I'm reflecting on that. 6.55, I'm on the doorstep of Bay Blue. 7.10, my coffee is in my lap. Ah. Oh. First world problem. Sitting at home, I've got to u- I'm using my dishwasher, but it's too loud. I've got to turn the TV up now. <laughs> I missed a parcel on Friday. They've got a tag there. I really want that thing now, but now I've got to wait till Monday. My cushy desk job blocks YouTube, so I can't watch all those funny cat videos until I get home. First world problems, trivial matters that get us down when they really shouldn't. Things driven by a consumer culture that expose the unpleasant things in our character. Getting angry because there's two cars in front of us at an intersection and thinking it's a traffic jam. Malachi's Israel has entered first world problem territory. There's freedom, there's blessing, there's reproduction there for the taking, but they've become consumers and customers of faith instead of being fully consumed in God. They're no longer taking responsibility for their own spiritual formation. They want everything spoon-fed to them. They won't contend for the things that are actually being, that they're empowered to take on and do. They're no longer being persecuted, so now they're no longer being compelled to get on their knees before God in prayer either. They're free to worship whenever they want, but for some reason it no longer means anything. They could have an identity as a people and make a statement to the nations around them. They could be distinctly and refreshingly and peacefully different to the world around them. But they're too concerned with being intermarried with them and adopting their way of life. Instead of being a blessed and excellent nation under God, they were content to be less than that, with an outlook of doing just enough to keep God kind of happy, but living the rest of their lives for themselves. And in this arrangement, no matter what the people complained about, if things weren't working for them, it wasn't God's fault. I 
Like Israel back then, there is a significant risk of us bringing our first world problems to the Western church. We have a clear sense that God is moving tangibly in our time and place right now. God is working. Even if I can't see it, you're working. We sung that today. There is things going on all around us and stories to be told that would actually blow our mind. Even here in Mount Gambia, you walk down Commercial Street and you actually see what the Spirit is at work doing and it will blow your mind. We can be spoiled for choice on the way we gather for worship. Through technology, we have all the best and not so great scholarly insight available at the click of a button. We have wide open missional opportunities. We have unprecedented freedom compared to our neighbors. And I've got to be honest, it kind of frightens me that we're campaigning for more if we're making such little missional use of what we currently have. We have everything we need to be a blessed people and be a blessing to the world because God has put it there for us. Same as Israel, they had an opportunity sitting there too. God had positioned them if they only took that up. So as I consider ourselves in light of just these few verses, I'm seeing two quick challenges. First, lament appropriately when things are tough. Scripture and robust liturgy definitely makes room for this in our lives. Again, if you're doing it tough, freely take the full weight of your struggles and anxieties to the cross and allow others to bear that with you in Christian community. But at the same time, don't be so arrogantly consumed with first world problems that they derail our Christian expression. Let's make good use of the blessings afforded to us and embrace the missional responsibility that comes with our tremendous spiritual freedom. Right, let's read on. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. It's not all doom and gloom in Malachi here. We've seen it already. Chris has been able to give us a taste of that a couple of weeks ago. And now we have more. There's still people in the midst of this church nation who are on the right track. A remnant who held genuine reverence for the Lord. The people who stopped and spoke with each other in the face of what God was saying to them. In Elijah's day, there was a remnant who had not bowed their knee to the idols of the world. And the people who thought they were standing alone were simply like such as Elijah were to look around and look for the remnant and go, I'm going to find that cave and I'm going to find those people and we're going to get on with the job. 
In Malachi's day, there are the same sort of people. And we read in this passage that God is watching his people. He's watching for the response. He's looking, going, how are they going to react to what I am explicitly saying to them? He's inclining his ear. He's taking note. He's listening and hearing. Two very different ideas there. Listening, it's there. And he's hearing. He's capturing the depths of where they're at. And as he examines all that, both their words and their motives, he sees hope. A small pocket of people taking notice, choosing obedience, taking the Lord's blessings and being fruitful with them, offering their best, loving justice and mercy, living in excellence in the presence of God. A remnant who made an eternal remembrance from God. God actually said, I'm going to remember you forever. A remnant that God would ensure would go down in history as the difference makers of their time. Since Malachi is a prophetic text, let's interact with it that way briefly here. I believe a hundred years from now, church historians will tell two stories of our time in the Western church. The first story will speak of those whose faith flourished in the freedom of their time. It'll speak of those whose blessing was utilized for the kingdom of God. Those who took advantage of the open window of heaven and that allowed that the spirit of God continually topped them up and filled them and, and refreshed them as they continually gave out. It will speak of those whose worship was untainted and unblemished. And the world around them would see it and call it real, engaged, and genuine. It'll be a community that was known for justice, mercy, and, and just and people who were healthily separate from the world, not intermarried with it, not embracing its idols, having a clean backyard, and having a pure priesthood of believers is the best way to describe it. Church historians will tell of that church's impact in our time. I do believe, sadly, though, that this part of the story will be more of a remnant's tale than a commentary of the whole. Because that has been the nature of God's people throughout all of Scripture and all of time. I also believe history will tell of a majority who missed the chance we had. Who chose not to do anything with the open door we had. Who chose to be consumers. Who ignored the things God ordained and put in place for his work to flourish. Who blamed God for it not working. When all we had to do was pick up a shovel and get to work. Malachi is calling for Israel to consider what side of history they want to be on here. And out of these few short verses, I see that as a challenge, a powerful one for us modern Western believers also. What side of church history do we want to be found on? Let's keep reading. The church nation is now being made aware of the big picture of God in all this. Surely the day is coming 
It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. We are called at this time to the understanding here that what we see now is not the end game. Those getting away with evil now will not do so in eternity. Those who are on the outside going, oh yeah, well, look at the way the world lives, let's not worry, they're, they're doing their thing, and look, God's not doing anything, That's, that, they're fine. God says in eternity, not so. We also know that judgment starts with the house of God, the church also, but the unjust, the cheat, the thief, the lukewarm, the hypocrite, the pure-warmer with form but no substance. These are the people who will enjoy the ease of life right now. But we're told both in the church and externally that eternity will have the final say on that. The apparent prosperity of the wrongdoers in the present will be burned up in eternity. And they'll have nothing to stand on in front of a holy and righteous God. We're told here that their legacy will be nothing. No root or branch means that there will be nothing resembling genuine life or influence in what these people stand for in eternity. Nothing of lasting value in living the way of the world. We know in the big picture of God's sovereign rule, right will come out right in the end. And there will be no question whatsoever, not a, no single soul daring to even raise their hand, let alone shake their fist, as they see face to face his holiness and his justice in action. In 2 Peter 3, we're told this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his coming he promised? See, we're seeing an equivalent. We've got Malachi saying one thing, now we've got end days of the, of the church age saying the same. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Life goes on. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See the equivalence going on? You've got Noah and Eve as the days of Noah. That's what Jesus said, yeah? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. God operates outside of time. All right, Our agendas are not God's agenda, right? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Although life might be hard for believers in this life, eternity is a whole different story. 
The son of righteousness is a reference to the appearance of Christ. There is healing and there is warmth in his presence. We know it in part now, but it will be fully revealed then. We love the different references. We've got the son of righteousness in the Old Testament. We've got the bright morning star in the new, in Revelation. When all is at its darkest, all injustice will end. And we read that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When the things are seemingly at their bleakest points, the people are being instructed here to look upwards. The world around us looks pretty bleak. Look up. But my circumstances and all these other things going on and the world around me, they're getting there. Look, they're doing okay. They're... Look up. Look up. When evildoers prosper, look up. When persecution comes, drop the campaign and look up. When falsehood seems to reign supreme, lock up. Don't focus on the things they're doing. Look to God's picture. Look to his coming. When we have the right focus in the midst of all that stuff, we will then be about the right business. The frolicking of calves speaks of animals that have been kept in a narrow stall for a season and then given space to run. <laughs> I picked up my dog, Jake, this morning from the kennels and I saw it firsthand. Like, seriously, he, he had a very small space to run and him and a border collie shared it. But you should have seen him when he got out of that thing. Made it just, just absolute, it was a frolicking, it was a playfulness, it was a sense of. <sighs> there are so many limitations that we have now in this life that will not be in a, a problem in eternity. This narrow stall of life that we have now will open up to a wide field when the end comes for us. Trampling the wicked is not a promise that we'll get to beat on our enemies or extract revenge. That's God's problem, the situation, not ours. That's God's work, not ours. But we will be present when it happens. We see that similarly in 1 Corinthians 6. That, that Paul states that the church will be judging fallen angels. The sight of the wicked under our feet is a classical image of a conquered foe being presented there to us. All things that rise against us now will be a conquered foe then. Because it's God's justice at work. We don't need to be fighting for it. One Corinthians fifteen says that all enemies, even death itself, will come eventually under God's feet. We've got a great promise that God in his sovereign power is working for us right to the end. Look up in the face of all that we do. And the last few verses point to what's going on in the meantime. He says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Hmm. 
Great way to finish a letter, isn't it? Basically, God is saying this. Stick to the plan. The Mosaic law in Israel's day was still the moral standard for this church nation until Christ would come and complete that. In the meantime, the nation is being required to stick to it and remember it. Israel has been told something is going to complete what you currently focus on now. Stick to the plan of what you know because something up ahead is going to complete it. In the same way as the church, we stick to what we know now, the kingdom of God that we only know in part, but we know it's at hand and active around us. It's been inaugurated already. But we also know that there was going to be a complete day for that to happen. So we stick to God's kingdom agenda now. Stick to the plan. And for Israel, look up, look to eternity, but also look up to what's just up ahead. All the Old Testament points to the ministry of reconciliation that is found in the New Testament. The prophet, which would be like Elijah, was according to Jesus, John the Baptist. Elijah was known as a prophet who came to God's people when they were at their lowest. John's ministry began a new thing and paved the way for Christ when Israel was again at a whole new low. Because he arrived first, this is simply a reference to the beginning of the new way. And the great day of the Lord is actually the second coming of Christ. And the last word of this work is curse in some translations or destruction in what we just read. Frankly, disobedience will lead to that state before God. But this again is not the end of the game. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ was made a curse for us. Revelation 22.3 tells us that in eternity, there will actually be no more curse. So let's consider today and the last six weeks, seven weeks, Let's look at the whole challenge of God to the church and nation of Israel. The people challenged God's love and covenant-keeping ability. The priests were showing contempt. The offerings of thanks and atonement were defiled and worthless. The injustice of their backyard was causing their relationship with God to be damaged. They were engaged with mere lip service towards God in all that they did and they were wearying him with their many empty words. They were robbing robbing God by withholding the things that in reality belonged to him. They were basically in a backslidden state before God. And they were speaking in arrogance against the God who was giving them every opportunity to excel. But the remnant was shining. And they were living in pursuit of the big picture of God's sovereign plan. The wicked were asking, what do I get out of this? The righteous instead asked, where is God in all this and where do I need to play my part? The remnant were asking, what is my best response to the freedom I have in God? 
What is my response to the blessings I have in him, to the covenant I am part of, to the priesthood and holy people that I belong to, and to the purpose, the mission, and ministry that I, as a child of God, am called to, and that we, as a people of God, are jointly called to also.